Be glad, for your, right, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So um, let me open up our time in a word of prayer, and then I'll call Anthony up. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you because you are our Father in heaven, and you care for us. And um, uh, you showed us love through Christ, who, um, while we were sinners, Christ died for us, and he bore um, the punishment for our sins on the cross. And we thank you that um, uh, while we um, be poor in spirit, we are rich in the kingdom of heaven, um, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done and is doing and will continue to do. Um, just pray that you bless this time and help us to just honor you through all that you uh, have given us. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So let's welcome Anthony up. Thank you, Edmund. Yeah. Well, good afternoon. I'm super excited to be here. Great to worship with you guys. And uh, great to see Pastor Mark and Julie. We're longtime friends. Uh, we worked with Lighthouse in San Diego. I know a lot of you are familiar with that back in 2015 and then earlier this year. And, uh, uh, and we got invited up here, and I was so excited. So, I, you know, thanks for having us. Uh, very honored to be here. And what you have to know is that this is an answer to prayer to me. Um, a lot of you know, a lot of you have said that this is an answer to prayer for you, but it really is an answer to prayer for me. Um, and I want to you know spend a few minutes and talk about you know and talk about why that is, and really introduce myself um, so you have an idea as to who's talking to you. Well, 23 years ago, I became a financial advisor, and I realized right out of the gate that most people didn't have trusts and wills or any kind of estate planning set up. And I've always been of the belief that you know, what good is doing a financial plan now if you pass away and a chunk of your money goes to probate, goes to the IRS, uh, just because you didn't take a little bit of time to do some estate planning. And if you've listened to me on the radio or watched my, you know, any TV interviews I've done or anything like that, you'll hear me say frequently that no good financial plan is complete without an estate plan. Now, I also know that when, you know, I, I met with clients 23 years ago and even today, that if, in fact, uh, I tell you, you need a financial plan, go find an attorney, set up a trust, I, I just know what the end result of that recommendation is like 99% of the time, and that is that nothing happens. So I did what I often do. My own personality is one to take the bull by the horns and to go and, uh, and, and learn what I need to know so that I can help people do what it is that they need to do. So I became a trust expert. Uh, I was not an attorney. Uh, but I developed a network of attorneys, and so when clients came to us for the last 20 years now, I've been able to educate them about trust, wills, help them with that, uh, start the process in my office, uh, end the process in my office, and have the attorneys in there in every way in between, so that it was all done and legal and above board and everything else. Well, um, about, uh, we, we did that from 2000 to 2010, and in 2010, I met an individual by the name of Jim Rickard. Okay. Uh, some of you guys know Jim Rickard. Um, and Jim, if you don't know him, is the director and president of Stewardship Services Foundation uh, up in Newhall uh, by the Master's College in uh, SoCal. And uh, what, what Jim started 30 years ago, he started doing pastor's tax returns for free. And when the pastors realized he actually knew a little bit about money, they started asking him to speak at the various churches. So he's been speaking at churches all across the country 
thousands of churches over his ministry uh, about biblical principles of financial stewardship. Well, across the country, as he would speak about estate planning, and especially in California, he's always recommending that you got to have a trust. you got to have an estate plan set up. California is the worst place to die if you don't have an estate plan, uh, which is probably not hard to believe. So 2010, uh, uh, prior to 2010, I knew who Jim Rickard was. I didn't know him. But he was coming to my church, uh, to Grace Community Church, which uh, is where he attended at the time, and I knew he was going to be doing this biblical financial stewardship seminar. And so I called him up and I said, Jim, you're going to do this seminar and you're going to tell people they need to go get living trusts. Um, so do you, are you just sending them out to the wolves and hoping that they do it? Or do you actually have someone you're partnering with to, you know, who's willing to help you, support you in that ministry? And the first words out of Jim's mouth when we met was, you, know, you might be an answer to prayer. <laughs> because he didn't have anyone he was partnering with. And I came alongside Jim and said, look, I'm not trying to uh, make money off of this. This is, I've been, I had been praying for years. How do we take something that's temporal, you know, something that's money, right? I mean, it's important. You get to deal with it. You know, you have to be good stewards of your money, but how do I take something that's so temporal and use it to, for God's glory? And I didn't know that the 10 years of training I had been working on with doing estate planning and trusts and, you know, and so on was going to lead to a conversation with Jim. And that conversation led to me offering to Jim, look, I'm willing to do, you know, to help the, the, the members of the churches that you preach at, I'm willing to take what we know about trust and help them do their trust uh, and set up their estate plans at what it costs us to do. So I'm not looking to make money. I'm just looking to help them do what it is that they need to do. And the price has changed over the last 12 years. Uh, the price today costs us about $1,500 to do a full estate plan. That's what it's going to cost you guys to do the estate plan. But God, in a, in a very, you know, very roundabout way, answered my prayer and, and giving me 10 years of experience to be able to to uh, learn about trust and wills, and then introduce me to Jim Rickard. Well, now in the first couple years of working with Jim Rickard, um, what I realized, I, I asked Jim at one point, we were golfing, and I asked Jim at one point, I said, um, you, you're telling me you've been doing this ministry for three decades, and no estate planning attorney or no attorney, no one has ever come to you and said, you know, they're going to support you. And he was like, no, and I, I can find that hard to believe you know, with all of his contacts, but I asked him right there on the golf course, uh, I asked him, I said, what if I became an attorney? It's like, like, almost like, do you want to go eat? You know, <laughs> like you don't just do, you don't just become an attorney, right? But, but, uh, and, and his answer was like, look, it would greatly bless the people of God if you had the energy and stamina to do it. Right? So, uh, so the reality is, is, is I, God gave me the stamina to do it. I went out to but to start studying for a law and, and you know, take that, you know, the, the bar quiz. Uh, it's a tough quiz. <laughs> uh, you know, so it took me three times to pass that. But I've now, uh, I've now, by gracious, by the grace of God, been an attorney for three years to just bring it house and have more control over what we've been doing for 20 years as well. And then last year, um, there was an attorney who went to our church that does a very similar type of thing that we did. I didn't know this individual. I didn't know he existed. So I didn't even know who he was. But Apparently, God had other plans for him because he passed away, uh, and he wound up leaving a firm that was established for 20 years, and through some connections at the church and some people who knew that I was an attorney found me, uh, they, gave me they, they gave me the opportunity to acquire that firm. So last year, we bought a firm to just kind of expand what we're doing. So I'm taking what I've learned over 23 years as a financial advisor and what I've learned over that time as, uh, as, as an estate planning expert 
and about trusts and wills and then having become an attorney and now I can be here and, and you know, help you do, a lot of you, what you've known you, you, know, you should be doing and a lot of you what you should be, have done a long time ago. You know, so I'm going I'm to help you. I'm going to help you with that and uh, we're going to talk. You know, this is going to be two sessions. Uh, the first session usually is 45 minutes to an hour or so um, and in that first session we're going to talk about a bunch of stimulating stuff. We're going to talk about probate. <laughs> we're going to talk about trust. We're going to talk about wills. Um, we're going to talk about everything you need to know to be able to die legally in this country, okay? <laughs> legally in this country. Never mind. <laughs> but the bottom line is that the bottom line is that, uh, is that we're going to help you learn everything you need to know to be able to die with as, and, and leave your beneficiaries with as little of hassle as possible. Okay? And that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, that's going to be the first session. The second session, for those of you that want to move forward, is we're going to go through the application process. There are kids in the back. Uh, we don't need them for the first session. We'll need them for the second session. For those of you that want to move forward, in that kit is application. There's our retainer agreement. There's everything. And the second session is going to be me going through the application. For those of you that say, yes, let's do it, let's move forward, you're, I'm going to help you fill out the application. And part of the reason why we can do it at such a discounted price is because I don't have to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with all of you. I can do it all in a group session. Our normal price for living trust, if you call my office and say, you know, what's your price for a living trust? It's $3,500, right? That's our normal price to do a, a living trust, and, and that's the basic trust. So we're discounting it by $2,000 because it cost me about $1,500 to do. So those of you that want to start the process, we have the apps. We're going to take that second session. Usually that second session is a little bit longer, hour to an hour and a half, depending on questions. Um, and then we'll go through that. For those of you that want to start, walk through the app. And by the time we're done, um, you know, we'll... You know, we'll have what we need so that we can move forward. And then uh, our goal at this point is sometime between January and March, somewhere, you know, first quarter of next year, would be to have everything done, come back here again for those of you that want to move forward, and then we'll have all your documents, we'll sign them, we'll execute them, uh, we'll notarize everything, and then uh, you guys will be well on your way to getting done. Okay? Sound good? Now, I don't mind taking questions. Uh, so if you want to fire a question, that'd be great. Do me a favor, put up your hand. I'll be looking in the audience, um, live stream. Not sure exactly what you're going to do. Uh, you can put your hand up all you want, I guess. But uh, so uh, I'm. Uh, but I will look at uh, and just put your hand up. Let me finish a thought, and then we'll go from there. Um, let's talk about what estate planning is in general, because a lot of people think estate planning is just for when you're gone, and that's absolutely not true. It, it is certainly uh, give you the ability to control your estate from the grave, so you do have the ability to do that. But there's also a lot of things that uh, now, when you're alive, if you become incapacitated, you know, who's going to make decisions for you as well? And that's part of estate planning also, and that's very, very, very critical. So estate planning is not just the process of passing your estate when you're gone, but also deciding who's going to make decisions and the guidelines from which they're going to make decisions. Uh, while you are still alive, if you have an unfortunate event uh, or the Lord wills that for some reason you're incapacitated. Okay, so very important. Now, what is important to understand about death is that when you do pass away, is that there's really two laws um, that, that you're going to leave your estate under, either probate law or contract law. Okay, so everyone will die with part of their estate going through probate law or contract law unless you do something to, uh, to, to change that. Now, probate law, like the term sounds, means that your estate has to go through probate. 
If you have uh, a, a more than $184,500 of probatable assets, then what that means is that you, you have to go through probate. You're going to need to get attorneys. It's a court-ordained process. It's uh, very expensive. We'll talk, we'll talk a little more about that. But your estate has to go through probate before it gets to the individuals that it's ultimately going to get to. Right? On the other hand, uh, when you pass your estate under contract law, there's no probate. Right? So uh, everyone will have a state pass under probate law or under contract law. Uh, and I think that's important to understand as well, too. Now, with regards to probably all of you, even if you've not done any estate planning at all, you're going to have some assets, most likely, that are going to pass under contract law. So if you own a property, or uh, whether it's real property or whether it's personal property, as, as joint tenants, a lot of times husband and wife, they own something as joint tenants. Well, when one spouse passes away, there's no probate, and the, that, that spouse's half goes to the other spouse uh, because of the joint tenancy law. So under the joint tenancy contract, the contract with each other, when the first spouse passes, then the other spouse gets the, gets the asset. That's under contract law. Uh, if you have retirement accounts and you have beneficiaries that are properly named, well, the beneficiaries get your assets without probate because that's a contract. Retirement accounts have contract. If you have annuities, if you have life insurance, uh, all that gets to the beneficiaries without probate because it all passes under contract law. On the other hand, uh, real estate, uh, non-retirement accounts, your stocks, bonds, mutual funds, uh, bank accounts, all of that stuff will have to go through probate unless you've done some estate planning, which we're going to talk about later. But um, most of you are going to have things that are going to pass under contract law anyway. Okay? So probate law or contract law, those are the only two ways that you're going to wind up passing on your estate. A um, little more in depth about probate. You know, probate's that court process that ultimately the court determines who's going to be your representative, who's going to handle things on your behalf. And the court ultimately is going to determine who's going to get what. It's a very expensive process. Um, even the minimum fees are very expensive. It's statutorily designed, so the fees are governed by statute unless an attorney asks for more fees. Um, and most of the times the attorneys ask for more fees. You know? So it, it can be a very expensive process. But it's also a very public process because you have to lodge the will with the court if there is a will. Um, otherwise, you have to lodge your assets with the court. And that just means you have to disclose everything you have. So anyone that wants to know what you had when you passed away, um, they can know that because it's public information. It's also very easy to contest. Anyone can contest a probate or can contest a will or can file a claim for almost any reason that, that they want. And, and there's, it's very fraudulent in that regard. And there's a lot of fraud that does happen uh, with regards to that. But that's all wrapped up in the, in the probate process. Now, sometimes people think that having a will avoids probate. It doesn't. Having a will tells the court what to do if the court admits the will, uh, which they have to approve it. And it tells the court what to do uh, with, you know, with, with whatever's left after probate happens. So you know, it doesn't avoid probate. That's a common misconception. Probate happens first. The expense happens. Everything happens. But the court is involved the entire way. And then if you're lucky, I would say, then whoever the beneficiaries on your will are will get whatever's left. And I say if you're lucky because anyone can contest for any reason 
Um, you know, a lot of times it's not uncommon for there to be fighting uh, and arguing about people that think they should get things that they shouldn't get, or even people that think that they should be the personal representative, the executor, even if they're not named. So the court ultimately makes the decisions, but it doesn't avoid probate. Now, it's important to understand that everyone has a will. Right? Even God has a will, actually, right? <laughs> but, but everyone has a will. Um, and the fact is that it's either drafted by you or it's drafted by the state of California. Because if you haven't drafted the will yourself, um, then you die what's called intestate. If you die with the will, you, you die testate. If you die without a will, you die intestate. And then there's a statutory scheme that says that if you, if you haven't told us how you want your stuff distributed, then we're going to distribute it as per this scheme. Right? Uh, so you get to choose, uh, either you get to choose who gets your stuff or the state of California gets to choose who gets your stuff. And I'm going to suggest that the former is the better option. <laughs> but you all have a will, uh, whether you've set it up or not. Okay, and that's, that's important to understand. Now, a couple ways to, to set up a will. Uh, you can set up a, a holographic will. Holographic wills where you, you've written down, you know, I hereby give my stuff to... Whoever, and usually those are it's often referred to as a dying will, because that's usually the you know on my deathbed, you know realize I'm not going to make it too long. Give me a piece of paper, you know, and that's usually the holographic will, not the preferred method for setting up a will. Uh, you know, you you know the the preferred method would be setting up a will in a more formal manner, and, and you set up a will formally, and then there's criteria it has to follow, it has to meet, and and witnesses have to sign it, and and so on, but. Uh, but, but again, it doesn't avoid probate no matter how you set it up. Right? Now, some people will try to avoid that whole estate planning thing um, by, or, or try to avoid doing a will or a trust by adding someone as a joint tenant. A lot of times on real estate, we'll see a parent want to add a child on, um, on, on the home because now if the parent passes, then the child gets the home. Right? And that's true, and you avoid probate. The challenge is whenever you do that, there's going to be some negative ramifications, whether you're trying to add them on the home, whether you're trying to add them on a checking account or something else, there's going to be some negative ramifications. In the situation of the home, there's going to be some extremely negative tax benefits for doing that. And on top of that, um, liability comes into play because if you put someone else on your account as an owner, that half the account's theirs. If they have IRS problems, if they get into an auto accident and they owe someone money, guess, who can, you know, guess whose account can be levied? just because of liability. So, you know, people will try to avoid a will uh, and trust and, and do some estate planning in a manner that's maybe less expensive, but there's lots of cons to doing that. I'm going to suggest that the best way for those of you that, you know, have, a, have enough of an estate to go through probate, I'm going to suggest the best way to avoid probate and set up your estate plan is probably through setting up a living trust. Right? When you set up a living trust, what you're doing is you're setting up a contract. It's a contract between you and the beneficiaries, but it's a unilateral contract because you're the one in control. You're the one that gets to change it anytime you want. You know, usually if you have a contract, it's a two-way contract. You know, you have to do something, I have to do something, right? But a trust is a contract with you and the beneficiaries where the beneficiaries don't have to do anything and you get to do everything. So you set up a, you set up a contract and when you do it right, you now pass everything that would have gone under probate law through contract law, and then get rid of probate completely. Right? So let's talk about a trust. Let's talk about the, the mechanics of, you know, of a trust. 
When you set up a trust, you're, there, there's really two phases to that. The first phase is you set up the trust. And that's where we come in, that's where we're going to draft the trust, uh, and we're going to draft it according to your wishes. You get to choose who is going to make decisions for you, and you can't. We're going to call those people the successor trustees. You're going to decide who the beneficiaries are. You know, who's going to get your stuff when, when you're gone. Uh, you're going to decide how are they going to get your stuff. Uh, a lot of young children here, something happens to you, if, you know, if the Lord calls you home and you know, they're underage, do you want them to get everything the moment they turn 18, or do you want to spread it out over time? You know, maybe they get something at 21, maybe they get something at 25, maybe they get you know, something at 30. So how do we want them to get your stuff? You have the ability to control that from the grave if the Lord calls you home. Um, you also have the ability to, to set up trusts for maybe special needs individuals. Uh, if you have a child or some, a beneficiary you want to give some money to who is on disability, if you just give them a chunk of money, it's going to mess up their disability. So a special needs trust allows you to be able to, to, to control how much they get, even though you're gone, through the successor trustee so that it doesn't mess up their disability. Uh, we have a lot of clients who are afraid that their kids are going to blow everything. So you can set up what's called a spendthrift trust to make sure that your kids, no matter what age, just don't get everything and you can give them income over life or you can give them income over a certain period of time and spread it out. So when you create the trust, phase one, that's what you're doing. You're, you create the trust, you're setting it up. And our job is to find out and, and to help guide you with what do you want to do, what are your wishes, what's the best way to do that, and then we'll draft the document and uh, the trust document and then when you come back and sign it and notarize it, then your trust will be official. And so you will now have a trust. And you'll probably be 95% of the way through, but that other 5% is critical, phase two. And that is if you don't do this other 5%, then it's just like you didn't do the first 95%. And that other 5% is that now you have to fund the trust. So you create a trust, and then you have to fund it. What's that mean? Well, it just means you have to put all your accounts into the trust your assets into the trust. So the home has to be titled in the name of the trust. We do that for you because it takes deeds and you have to have some knowledge. So we do all that for you. Um, but, uh, but with your bank accounts, you're going to have to go to the bank and tell them, hey, I don't want to be the owner of my bank accounts anymore. I want the trust to own my accounts. Okay. Um, your non-retirement accounts, you know, if you have brokerage accounts, then the trust needs to own that. So really the trust needs to own all of your assets. Now, when I say all, I don't mean all. Because there are certain assets that, that, that the trust can't own. Your retirement accounts, the trust can't own those. Okay. Uh, life insurance is, is optional. Uh, usually the trust doesn't own life insurance, annuities, things like that. So when I say all of your accounts need to be transferred to the trust, what I really mean is all of the accounts that would normally go through probate if they weren't transferred into the trust, those need to be transferred into the trust. Okay. So at the end of the day, the trust is like a box. You, you create the box, and you put everything you own into that box. So uh, when, when you pass away, um, only the creator of the trust died. The trust itself didn't die, which is why they call it living trust. So you own the box. The box owns your stuff. Okay. And, you know, the, the reality is you control the box, so you don't lose any control. You don't uh, lose any property tax advantage, disadvantages, uh, state taxes. None of that is affected by this, except that when you pass away, you didn't own anything. 
because only the creator of the trust passed away. The trust itself didn't pass away. Okay? And that's why they call it living trust. So you've got to create it. And then you have to fund it. Okay? And we'll do your properties for you, uh, but, um, but you have to go to the bank uh, and so on. And when we get to our second session today and we go through the application, um, you know, there's a, a form that we're going to ask you to fill out that has you list all of your financial assets so that when we deliver the trust to you, we can help you figure out very specifically for you what needs to go in the trust, what not needs to go, you know, what needs to stay out of the trust and how to structure all of that. So we'll get there in the second session. But the whole point, the whole purpose of the trust is to make sure that you avoid probate. Okay, and, and now, in, whereas most of you have things that are going to pass under probate law and contract law, once you have a properly trust set up, uh, set up a, a trust properly, then everything will pass under contract law, and you can just avoid probate completely. Okay, so very important, uh, you know, to understand that. And that's really, I'm going to suggest the best way to avoid uh, probate is through a living trust. Right? Now, in addition to the trust, you also need a, uh, a will. Now, you might be saying, well, wait a second, I thought wills go through probate and we don't need a will, and the whole point of having a trust is to avoid that probate. Yeah, in, in a perfect world, uh, when you pass away, you don't need a will. In a perfect world, when you pass away, everything that's supposed to be in the trust is in the trust. But most of the times when people pass away, that's not what happens. Most of the times when people pass away, there are accounts outside the trust that should be in the trust but aren't. And it could be because we just forgot to put them in when we did the trust. You know, we did it. We did that 95%. We put a couple of accounts in, but we forgot about these. Or most commonly, more commonly, is when you set up a, uh, a, a trust and life goes on and you open uh, different accounts, bank accounts and brokerage accounts and so on as life goes on, you forget you have a trust. And that's oftentimes what happens. So when the broker says, well, how do you want these titles? You just put them in my name. Put them in our name. Well, now they're not in the trust, so when you pass away, there's accounts outside of the trust. So the state of California says that if you have a will, a specific will, a will called a pour-over will, okay? if you have a will um, and all of your assets outside the trust that should be in the trust but aren't, if all those assets are less than $184,500, then the state will allow you to will those accounts to the trust with no probate. So it's really like $184,000 safety net, okay, is kind of the way that I look at that. So in a perfect world, if everything you, you know, you passed away and everything was outside of the, or inside the trust like it was supposed to be, then you don't need the will. But that very, very rarely happens, okay? So you're going to have a will with your trust uh, also. The other document, or I should say another document that you need, is a nomination of guardian for your children. What happens if mom and dad pass away and they've got young children? You know, who's who's going to get them? Well, the courts are ultimately going to make that decision, but you have the ability to nominate who you want the guardian to be. And there's still a court process. You can't get away from the court process. But the simple fact is that you can have some influence as far as who is going to be in charge and take care of your children. Okay. Uh, otherwise, the courts are just going to make that decision. And for some of you, it might be easy. You might have family members that the court would see as legitimate alternatives to you, since you can't. 
but a lot of you probably have Christian brothers and sisters that are not family members that are guardians. Um, I know for a long time in my own situation, we had uh, my, my, my sister and brother-in-law weren't the guardians because we weren't sure about certain things. So we had other family members of the church that were guardians. And you, the challenge is if you're in that situation where you choose someone maybe that's not a family member to be a guardian, the court has the ability to question that. You know, the court, the court may look at that and go, well, you guys have grandma and grandpa over here, or you have brothers and sisters, and, but then you're choosing people from the church you know, why would you do that? And, and if the people, if, the, if grandma and grandpa um, or the, your siblings are, are arguing and wanting the kids, well, the court has that decision to make. So if you're nominating someone that may not be you know, a natural nominee, if you will, then we're also going to recommend in addition to that nomination that you're going to get, that you also you know, write a letter and just spell out why you chose these people. So when the court's looking at it, essentially you're arguing your case with the court as to why you chose uh, you know, these individuals to be the guardians for your children. Okay? So I think it, uh, that's important to understand as well too. Um, but very critical document for those of you that have minor children. The next document that you're going to get as part of the estate planning process is the durable power of attorney. The durable power of attorney uh, has to do with your finances. And the durable power of attorney allows you to choose someone to make your financial decisions for you when you are alive but incapable, but only with regards to accounts outside the trust. So we've said that you create this trust, you create this box, and you put everything you own into the box. And you've chosen successor trustees to manage that box for you. And they're going to manage that box if you're gone or if you can't. So they're the ones that are going to manage the box. So everything that's in the box is going to be managed by the successor trustees. But what about those accounts that are outside the trust? What about the IRAs, the 401ks, the retirement accounts, the life insurance, the annuities, uh, all those accounts? Well, those accounts are not inside the trust. Therefore, the successor trustee has no authority over them. So what the durable power of attorney does is it gives the, the successor trustees the authority to manage accounts not only in the trust, but also outside of the trust as well. So it's the same authority. It's just two different documents to get the same place. Okay, But very critical to have that durable power of attorney. And it will flow through. It'll be your same successor trustees will also be the, the agents on the power of attorney. It's just two different documents. Okay. Um, advanced health care directive. This is probably, especially for young families, this is probably the most important document we're going to talk about today. The Advanced Healthcare Directive uh, is critical because of the HIPAA laws. Right? The Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act um, came back into play in the mid-90s, and it's, it's been upgraded over time to where it's become, it's become more and more restrictive. And it's at the point where it's so restrictive now that it's having unintended consequences. If you are uh, in a situation where you're in an accident or you have a medical condition and, uh, and you're unconscious and you go to the hospital right, and your spouse comes running in to find out what's going on, the doctors legally cannot tell them anything about your condition at all. And this is not just spouse, but this also has to do with adult children. Unless you have an advanced health care directive, doctors can be fined, they can go to jail for releasing information about you to anyone other than you. 
And it, it's very, very critical. I, uh, about six or eight months ago, my wife and I were going to a Kings game. I don't know if that's a bad word around here, but, uh, <laughs> but we were going to a hockey game. Uh, <laughs> and um, and part, of, part of that, the Staples Center at the time, is you had to go get a negative COVID test if you weren't vaccinated. And so we had a clinic, and you know, this was a clinic that we had gotten familiar with, and it was, you know, wasn't uncommon for us to have to go to this clinic. We learned we could walk in, walk out. You know, sometimes it took an hour, sometimes it takes five minutes, but we could go to this clinic. And so this one particular day, my wife and I agreed, we're going to the game tomorrow. Sometime today, you got to go to the clinic. You go, I'll go, and whatever. So I, I got to the clinic. I want to say it was 6 o'clock at night after, after work was done. And I texted my wife, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm here. You know, I'm at the clinic. I'll be home as soon as I'm done. And she texted me back, and she goes, oh, I'm here, too. I'm in room number one. <laughs> okay. So I went up to the nurse. I go, hey, my wife's back here in room number one. Um, can I just go back? And she goes, I, I can't confirm that your wife's here or not. I go, HIPAA. She goes, yeah. I go, you can't even tell her. I said, can you go get her and bring her out? No, you got to text her and have her come out. They couldn't even tell me that she was there. This is a COVID test. What if, what if she had been in a car accident and in the hospital? And, you know, and the doctor comes out and, you know, tell me what's going on. Oh, I, I can't even confirm that she's here. That's, where, that's what's happened. And there's stories that are happening as a result of that. And it's not just you, but it's also your adult kids. For, you, you know, you might have these documents, but you have 18-year-olds, they need these documents too, okay? So the Advanced Healthcare Directive, very, very critical. And it does let you, it does let you make some choices. It lets you choose who you want to make those decisions for you, you know? So if you can't, who's going to? It also lets you choose, you know, whether you want to be an organ donor or not. Um, it also chooses whether you want to be on life support. So you get to state your wishes up front, and most of these things are very easy to to decide, um, you know, especially for Christians. I mean, if you're a Christian, why would you want to be on life support? <laughs> you know, so the reality is that, um, that that's a very, very important document. What happens if you don't have an advanced health corrective or what happens if you don't have a, um, a uh, power of attorney and something happened? Well, then there's a court process called conservatorship or guardianship, that basically is now going to be someone coming in and saying, hey, this is what, you know, this is what they, they would have wanted, um, and you, you, they can't legally make decisions for you. So now that person, family member, uh, if you're a little bit older and you have you know, kids that are above 18, it could be the kids or it could be siblings if you're younger, but someone has to decide to make those decisions. And there's conservatorship. There's two different kinds of conservatorship. There's conservatorship of the, of the person, and there's conservatorship of the estate. And that means that you're responsible for the person, or you're responsible for their money, or both. And it's a very expensive process. Uh, it could be ten dollars or $20,000, kind of at a minimum level, to go through conservatorship. Um, and if people fight, if there are more than one individual that wants to have control of the person or the estate, then it could just go up from there because now you're in litigation. So it just depends. And, and most of the times that's not the case. Most of the times there's not a lot of finding. The people that want to make decisions go forward, but you still have court fees and court process and everything else, and it you know, could take weeks or months to do, which is the last thing that you need when someone is in a situation where they can't make their own decisions. So unfortunately, it's just been a slow process. The solution is to have the Advanced Healthcare Directive and the Durable Power of Attorney because that eliminates the need for that whole court anyway. Okay, um, so I think it's important to understand that the default to all of this stuff is not good. 
Um, the last thing I want to spend a few minutes talking about before we end our first session. Oh yeah, we're good. Um, is I want to talk a little bit about community property and separate and separate property. Um, most people think that when you know if one of their spouses, if, if you know, one of your spouse passed away, that the surviving spouse gets everything. That may or may not be true. You know, the surviving spouse doesn't get uh, everything just when one spouse passes away because we're in a community property state. Okay. Community property state. Most people think that everything we own is community property. No. Community property is all property, whether real or personal, um, that is acquired by a married person while domiciled in the state of California. That's the actual probate code language. Um, and so there's exceptions to that. You know, if you're married and you acquire assets, uh, then those are going to be community property. But there are exceptions of gifts. If a parent or sibling or someone gave you a gift, well, that gift does not automatically become community property. If an inheritance, more common. You know, if you inherit something from a parent, that inheritance is uh, not community property. That, that inheritance is separate property. So most people have community property and separate property and don't even know it. And if you pass away and you have uh, community and separate property, well, the community property is generally deemed to go to the surviving spouse, but the separate property is not. If you have uh, separate property and, and you haven't done anything to protect yourself and one spouse passes away, well, that spouse's separate property will be split between the surviving spouse and the kids to some proportion depending on how many kids you have and so on. And a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't. First of all, that there's, a, there's a, a number of ways to make a mistake. Most people have separate property to some degree that they don't realize was separate property. This could be assets that you brought into a marriage. So you, just because you get married doesn't mean it's separate property. If you own the real estate and you get married, that real estate is still separate property. You may want your spouse to get it when you die. You may think your spouse is going to get it when you die, but at the moment that you die, that property, only some of it may go to your spouse and the rest of it may go to your kids while your spouse is still alive. So most people don't know this. And there's always ways to change it. You can change it intentionally or you can change it accidentally. So if you have a, a property like this that you want to go to your spouse, you got married, you owned a significant asset or property, you can, you can do what's called a transmutation and you can change the character of the property so by simply signing something that says, hey, I want this to be community property. It's not much more difficult than that. You want it, you, you've changed it to community property. You have the choice to control it. Now it's community property. Or if you've inherited something, a lot of times people will inherit something, they don't want it to be community property. You inherit a you know, an asset from a parent, and you don't want that to be community property, well, you can change that as well accidentally. If you commingle assets, if you use community funds to support that property, to pay that property, if it can't be traced, well, you might accidentally transmute what was separate property into community property, even though you think it's separate property and it's not. So there's just a lot of mistakes that we see people make just because they don't know the rules. And one of the biggest rules is most people, the biggest laws, the biggest mistakes is most people don't even know that really separate property exists. It's the assumption that everything we own is separate property. And as attorneys, when we start drilling down, a lot of times that's not the case. And so we can change it 
But if it gets changed while you're alive, um, you know, then you're good. If it doesn't get changed and something happens to you, then there, then there could be some problems. And we deal with this stuff all the time that people don't know. And I, I just hate it when I hear that. I didn't know. I didn't know. You know. So, and that's what happens. So you got to be, got to be careful, uh, because we are. It adds, it adds an extra layer of complexity to estate planning. Um, before we wrap up, I want to wrap up with a little bit of trivia. <laughs> I, I enjoy doing this. I, there's a couple of phrases that you may or may not have heard of. Most people haven't heard of these phrases. You guys have. I'll be impressed. Uh, and then, uh, and then we'll call it a wrap. We'll take a first, you know, 15 minute break, and then we'll come back and do our second session. But um, common law marriage. What's how many years in, in California you have to be married for common law marriage to to occur? Anyone know? No guesses. All right. There's no common law marriage in California. Okay, so it doesn't matter. Other states have seven years, 10 years. So if you've been together for 10 years, seven years, you're, you're married under law, not in California. Okay, so there's no such thing as common law marriage in California. Anyone here know what a putative marriage is? Anyone ever heard the term putative marriage? No? Putative marriage? It's where at least one spouse thinks they're legally married, but they're not. This doesn't happen often. We've, we've run across it, okay, but, but it could be, there's several situations that that could happen. It could be uh, scandalous. It could be where, you know, the husband or wife was previously married and they're not divorced and then they get married again. That's, that second marriage is not a valid marriage. Okay, so, it's the, so that would be a putative spouse. The, the spouse that got married, the, the, the non-scandalous spouse, they don't know. They don't know that they, that, that, that exists. They don't know that the husband, you know, whatever he's hiding from them or the wife, whatever they're hiding, they don't know. So they're a, an innocent party. They're called a putative spouse, but it's not a legitimate marriage. Okay. Uh, it could be something as, uh, something as technical as the pastor's marriage license expired. Don't let your marriage license expire. <laughs> it makes, it makes, it makes complicated, it complicates estate planning in that situation. There's a case out there that we studied in law school um, where I just don't understand it, but there was one guy who had a, a family on the East Coast and a family on the West Coast. A couple kids on the East Coast, a couple kids on the West Coast, different wife, um, and they didn't know about each other. They were both married. I think one was 27 years and one was 26 years married, and they, they only found out about each other when he died. And the two spouses come forward like, I'm the wife, I'm the wife. What do you mean you're the wife? <laughs> I, do, I don't... I can hardly handle one. I mean, I don't know why you would even want to do that. But, I mean, the business trips must have been long and very strategic. I don't know. But it legitimate, legitimate case. That was a nightmare, you know, when it comes to unraveling community property in different states. And now the, both spouses are equally entitled to things. And uh, Anyone know what is a meretricious relationship? This is the easier one. This is when you have two people that are living in sin that know that they're not married, but they're living together. That's the legal name for that is the meretricious relationship. Right? So now you guys know. Um, so we have, uh, we've wrapped up our first session. Any questions? Yes, sir? Okay. Let's say my mom passes away. 
So it doesn't, it doesn't matter uh, if it's a joint account, okay, you and your mom, and you're not just an authorized signer on it, you're actually an owner on the account, then when your mom passes away, uh, you get her half. If you pass away, she gets your half. So the survivor gets the half. Community property laws aren't coming into play. Separate property laws are. Uh, doesn't matter if your mom's married or not. The survivor, under contract law, will get the surviving portion of uh, the first decedent's passing. So it depends on, that's more fact specific. You know, you probably don't want to list your kids as beneficiaries unless your kids are, are, are yeah, are over the age of 18. That would be where you would want a trust to own that account unless it's retirement. But if it's joint account, it can't be retirement. So if it's, uh, if it's an account that's owned by you and your wife, now you want the trust to own that account. And then when you set up the trust, it says, you know, at 18, your kids get a little something. At 25, they get a little something. At 30, they get the balance. Then the trust will govern all that because, not because the trust is the beneficiary of that, but because the trust is the owner of that account. So yeah, it's all governed under the trust because the trust, it's all titled in the trust. <laughs> You own a property, you say? Let's let's say your mom and you own a property. Yeah. Okay. And it's joint letter. And um, but you know, you can't really put that into my trust, right? Because <laughs> then it's, it's also my mom. But then, in any way, she could put it on her trust if she, if she has a trust. Right. And maybe yes. Okay, so let me. And I'm actually realizing that uh, probably the live streamers can't hear you. So uh, if I rephrase your question, just so for them. Uh, you're basically saying, what if your mom and you own a property, and how does that work if you set up a trust? I think that's what your question is. Well, the answer is that the trust can own your 50% of the property. Yep, so and that would be it. So uh, it doesn't have to just go in your mom's trust, uh, not just yours. Your trust can own your portion. It's not all or nothing for the trust. Yeah, great question. So any other questions before we call it a wrap? Yes, ma'am. Here, ladies first. Yeah, so the question then uh, is, what about separate property, and is, does that apply to cash? Uh, the answer is, yeah, it doesn't matter what the separate property is. Okay, cash is a lot harder to trace, so it's a lot easier to make cash separate property, community property, accidentally, than it is, say, a piece of real estate. Okay, if, if you got a, if you inherited a piece of real estate, well, that real estate's there, it's going to be really difficult to, you know, that, that could be, that, that's your separate property. Well, if you inherit uh, you know, X amount of dollars and it goes in your checking and then you're paying bills and writing checks and so on, that could get commingled to where if they can't trace it, they use a, the courts use a tracing process to try to figure out, can we figure out what money is really separate property? And if it gets so complicated that they can't figure it out, they go, hey, it's all community property. So the answer is absolutely separate property still. It doesn't matter what the character of the property is. Um, and it also doesn't matter if you inherit a bunch of cash and then you use that cash to buy a building or buy a property. Well, that, that, that property is traced. The cash is traced to that property. It's still separate property, not community property. All right, so, yeah, good question. So, Yes, sir. Um, a question regarding funding trust. Okay. So, logistically, do people convert their account or brokerage to a trust and then put it into the box? And do they create a separate account that they use for like their day-to-day? -day no, no, no. You can, you can use the, 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 
the, well, first of all, so let me, so for live stream, the question is, if we create a trust account, do we then create another account to act on a day-to-day -day basis? No, you can use your trust account to act on the day-to-day -day basis. Okay, my checking accounts are owned by my trust. You won't know the difference. You, know, you, you can still write checks. You, you don't have to have, well, these accounts are owned by trust, so I can't touch them. No, your checking account will be owned by the trust. I personally don't have the word trust written on my checks because then sometimes that creates people say, well, this is a trust or it creates problems. You can put on your checks whatever you want, right? You tell them what to put on your check. I just leave the word trust off of there. So my wife's name, my name's on there and our address and phone number or whatever else we have on there. And I just go on to write checks. So you won't notice the difference having a trust or not except until you pass away. Okay, so yeah, it doesn't affect your day-to-day -day living. Great question. Yeah, any other questions? Yes, sir. And, um, and it, was, it has to be notarized, and can we, like, do something, uh, another, like, for, like, for uh, having your service? Mm -hmm. um, what happens to the people's Yeah, thank you for asking that, because that's probably applicable to others as well, too. So the question was um, that this, this young man did LegalZoom, uh, a trust five years ago, and... <laughs> what? I mean... Yeah. So, <laughs> he's one of your, he's one of your, I'm comparing him to me. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, bottom line is, uh, is that the, the question was, if we did a trust five years ago with LegalZoom, you know, can we redo it? Uh, should we redo it? I think that's part of the question as well, too. So, I, I'm not a big fan of the do-it-yourself trust services. I mean, I think Susie Orman has a trust package out there that you could do, or LegalZoom, and the, the challenge is with our legal system, when you go through and you answer all the questions, there are some questions that seem like they're common sense, that well, of course the answer is going to be this way, but in the legal world, you're answering it wrong. And you won't know that until you're gone, until it's too late. And I, I can't tell you how many times, again, I've been dealing with trusts for you know, over 20 years, and, and many times people will come and like, I didn't know, and then the beneficiaries are there, like, well, why, why didn't they do this? Why did they have that there? You know, because they didn't know. So, uh, especially for what you guys are paying, I don't know what it costs to do a trust on LegalZoom. I'm going to guess it probably costs 500 bucks or you know something, uh, or a thousand bucks maybe for 3,500 dollars. If you don't have any assets and just like one thing, and it's just so simple, maybe LegalZoom is not a bad option if you're really 14 a month. Is it? No, that was it. So you got it. Yep. So I don't know that I. Yeah, I, I was going to say I don't know that I. Trust a trust that was done for $14. <laughs> I was driving down Topanga, Topanga Canyon Boulevard. So that's why I wanted to do your service. Yeah. The, the legit way. Oh, sure, 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 sure. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. I was, I was driving down Topanga Canyon Boulevard the other day, coming back from the office, big boulevard, and there was a, like a chalkboard sign on the sidewalk that was like, I think it said, Botox, $10. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> that just doesn't make sense. But they... Yeah, so the, the answer to your question is yes. If it's something we need to redo and we want to do it, what we're going to do is we're going to do what's called the restatement. And this is true for all of you that maybe have changes. Maybe you did a trust a long time ago. Maybe it wasn't a do-it-yourself. You just update. We recommend every 10 to 15 years redoing the whole thing anyway. Okay? So for some of you younger individuals that are going to do one now, it's not going to be the last one you do. 
Every 10 to 15 years, you're going to want to redo it. Uh, just because laws change. You know, trusts that are drafted today, the language in there is more relevant and more current to something that was 10 and 15 years ago, okay, or 20 years ago. So, uh, so you're going to want to have it updated every 10 to 20 years. If you have a trust that is 10 to 15 years old now and you want to redo it, we're going to do what's called a restatement of trust. And that means that we're not going to void your trust and do a new one. We're going to use the name and date of your trust, but we're going to amend everything. It's called a complete restatement or complete amendment. So we're going to, we're going to uh, for all intents and purposes, void all the language that you've previously had, and we're going to restate everything, complete amendment, which what the benefit of that is, if all your stuff is in the trust, as it should be, then you don't have to go back and put it into the trust again because it's already there because we're going to keep the same name and date of your trust, but we're redoing the entire thing. Okay, so yeah, we can do that. You know, uh, as well, too. And same thing for the rest of you. And if you have a trust, um, you know, then, you know, one of, the, one of the services that we'll provide, if you want to know, you know, should I make changes, you know, should I, you know, is there anything that I need to do, is we'll review that. You can get on my calendar for an hour. As long as you get us your trust, I can do a quick phone call with you, review your trust, and then let you know if there's any changes that need to be made as well, too. And that's a service we normally charge $400 for. Um, it's, it's a, you know, $400 for the hour for reviewing the trust, but for you guys, it's, it's free, you know, so we, we do that for free. So, um, any other questions before we call it a wrap? I'm getting more and more. Yes, sir. So it's not going to help you. It's not going to have any impact on, the, the question is taxes. Um, you know, how, how do taxes and trust work together? It's not going to have any impact on your taxes whatsoever. Okay. Not this kind of trust. Yeah, good question. Uh, just a general question about whether a trust is appropriate for a person Great, great question, and I, I love that uh, because there are a lot of young families here that maybe not be appropriate for, and you might be thinking the same thing. The question is. You know, as earlier we mentioned, uh, 184,500 is kind of the threshold to where if you have less than that, you're not going to go through probate. So then the question is, well, do you, you know, if you're, if you're less than that amount, if you're not you know, subject to probate, do we really need a trust? At $3,500, uh, no. <laughs> okay, at our full price, no, because you can do a will package for, you know, I think it's half of that amount or a little close to half of that. Uh, keep in mind, you still need the power of attorney. You still need the advanced directives. You still need, if you have young kids, nomination and guardianship. When you add up the stuff that you need, even if you don't need a trust, it's going to come to $1,500 or more. So the fact that we're doing the entire thing for $1,500 means even if you don't need it, get it anyway because you're going to need all the other stuff. And then you'll have it in place. So when you do cross over that limit, you buy a property or whatever, you already have it. So for what we're offering it for, it makes no sense to try to do just one or two things. Unless you need just a, an advanced directive or something. But in your situation, just do it because you're going to save a ton of money anyway. So, yeah, great question. Let's do one more if we have one more. Yep, right there. And then we'll call it a wrap and we'll come back. No one. The, the, question, the question was, once a, once a trust is created, who needs to receive a copy of it? You'll receive a copy of it. Right? Uh, we have family members that will pass it to everyone, but most not. Most of them, we recommend uh, that we just keep it somewhere else. Uh, when we do it for you, we're going to keep it a copy in the cloud in our system. We've been doing that for, I think, 10 or 12 years now, uh, keeping a copy. Um, and then, and that way, if something happens to yours, but I keep mine in a filing cabinet 
you know, in my home. I mean, it's not something that if it disappears because we've got electronic copies, you know, uh, the people that are going to need it are the people that are the successor trustees. You want to make sure they know where it is. They want to make sure they know they have one, but you don't have to give it to them. But they do need to, if you guys get killed in a car accident, they do need to know where it is and where to find it. So absolutely, good question. So beautiful. So has this been helpful? Okay, perfect. Thank you. So let's do this. Let's take a quick 15-minute break. It's 118. Uh, my math says 130. Okay, so let's just do 130 back here. Uh, grab a kit. Kits in the back look like this. Uh, if you want to start the process, you don't have to start the process. If you want to sit in, you're not obligated to start the process. But if this is something you've said you want to do, grab a kit because we're going to go through the entire kit. We're going to go through the entire process. And for those of you that say, hey, we just got to do this, we're going to, st we're going to start that right here. So that's what we'll do in session two.